Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. So, Ken, Alan Weisselberg is in, I don't do we call this serious, moderately serious trouble? He's uh, pleading guilty to 15 counts in the criminal case that was brought uh, by the Manhattan District Attorney uh, related to a, a tax evasion scheme uh, where the Trump Organization paid employees in a manner that was designed to shield taxable income from tax. And related to that, he's going to have to pay $2 million in tax and penalties. And he's sentenced to five months in jail, uh, which he will serve at Rikers Island. He'll probably serve closer to three months. But, you know, I would not enjoy going to Rikers for three months. That seems like a, a reasonably unpleasant outcome there for Alan Weisselberg. Yeah, I mean, I think that's serious trouble. Felony conviction is serious trouble. Rikers is serious trouble. Uh, you know, you're lucky if you can survive there 100 minutes, let alone 100 days. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's very serious. What it's not necessarily is a big payoff compared to all the wish casting and hopes that were surrounding this criminal uh, indictment and uh, this prosecution on tax issues. Because as you recall, plenty of people were very hopeful that, oh, well, Alan Weisselberg is going to flip. He's going to help take down Trump. This is the case that will finally do it. Uh, this is the gateway to getting Trump and the Trump organization for all sorts of serious things. Well, Weisselberg is flipping on the Trump organization. Part of the deal for this sentence is that he will testify in the criminal trial of the Trump organization uh, about the organization's criminal liability. So I guess, first of all, what does it mean to prosecute a corporation? What's the point? What's the outcome when you do that? Well, the corporation obviously can't be jailed. However, it can be fined and it can be basically forced out of business in extreme circumstances. It can be put on probation where its activities can be limited. So some of the things that can happen to a human defendant can happen to a corporation. And I can tell you, uh, it's sort of fun to show up in court as the corporation's lawyer and also the, as the living embodiment of the corporation to be sentenced. <laughs> sort of a new experience. Have you done that? I have. Fortunately, it was in Hawaii, so it was a lot more pleasant. But still, <laughs> being there saying, you know, I'm sentencing you as the corporation, too. It was it was new. It was new and different, Josh. So in this instance, what might that mean for the Trump organization? Uh, because, I mean, you, they have various assets, properties, intellectual property, Trump's name. Is this a serious negative outcome for him and for his family as the owners of the Trump organization? Is it a real problem for them, for the organization to be put on trial and potentially convicted for this? Well, Donald Trump hasn't shown a long-term tendency to stick with any particular entity or vehicle for doing what he's going to do. So I would say mostly no. This may, if, if the government prevails at the trial of the Trump organization, result in orders that they repay large amounts of taxes. We're talking millions of dollars. It could involve some sort of term of probation where the entity's activities are limited and there are some sort of reporting requirements or supervision requirements. But ultimately, it's not going to very seriously uh, touch Trump, probably not reputationally either, because, I mean, at this point, anything about Trump is priced in and uh, something about one of his entities uh, getting convicted of a tax crime is probably not going to move the ball for anybody uh, with all the other things going on. It would be a more big deal if this were some reputable company that's not typically in the eye of the hurricane uh, the way Trump's companies tend to be. I mean, the reason that a more normal corporation would be very distressed about being indicted is that it often creates defaults under loan agreements 
or other contracts that the organization has with counterparties. It can cause you to, to tumble into bankruptcy because basically your loans get called because you default on your mortgages and that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I don't know the precise nature of the Trump organization's financial entanglements. We do know that they so thoroughly alienated so many lenders over the years uh, that they may not have the same level of exposure that certain other entities would to that sort of risk. But I assume that that would be one significant concern, right? That in addition to any legal penalties imposed directly by the government, the indictment itself, even before there's a conviction, but also a conviction can make it more difficult for you to do certain kinds of business because other people won't be willing to do that business with you. That's right, Josh. But we don't know what type of financial arrangements they have now. And we don't know whether or not a conviction will do anything different to those than the indictment and the investigation and the vast negative publicity already did. You get the feeling that they're not necessarily doing standard loan arrangements with the big reputable banks, but are in other types of arrangements that perhaps will not carry the same problems. This is being widely reported as the Manhattan DA wanted to get Weisselberg to flip on Trump personally and did not get him to do that. What's the right way to think about that? Is it necessarily the case that Alan Weisselberg, that he held firm and was loyal and that's why he's not flipping? Or should we consider the possibility that Trump did not, in fact, commit a crime related to these tax issues? The intent standard here is quite high. We don't have direct insight into the level of knowledge that Donald Trump personally had about this. Is it plausible that the reason that Weisselberg never flipped on Trump personally is that Weisselberg did not, in fact, have the goods? It's perfectly possible. I mean, uh, Trump is not necessarily a details guy. And his fingerprints may not be on some of these bad tax decisions, not so much for lack of uh, willingness if the issue came up, just because that's not typically his purview. Uh, he may set the tone that allows it, but he's not necessarily the kind of guy who has his fingers in it directly. Uh, he chooses people who will do things the way he generally wants them done. So we've been talking for a long time, Josh, about how that level of intent they were going to have to show, really knowledge you're committing a crime, was going to be very difficult for the government. And then there, there's also a, a separate set of conduct uh, that the uh, Manhattan DA had been investigating Donald Trump personally for, which had to do with statements that Trump and the Trump Organization made about the value of various properties, giving different valuations in different contexts that were advantageous for one reason or another. You, for example, you might report a low value when you're trying to get assessed for your property tax, but then you report a high value when you're trying to get a mortgage loan. That's a matter that's being investigated civilly by the New York Attorney General we spoke about recently. There was also a criminal investigation that uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg shut down somewhat controversially. There were a, a lot of people inside the office and out who had hopes that, that Trump would be personally indicted over that. And Bragg seems to have made the decision that uh, either the, the case was, was too weak in terms, again, of that intent issue or was going to be such a resource suck, decided not to pursue that. Conceivably, that's another matter that they might have hoped to get information about from Weisselberg. So even if Trump did not have sufficient knowledge of this tax scheme to be prosecuted for that, maybe they would have hoped that they would get Weisselberg to cooperate about the, the valuation issue. But clearly that has not arisen either. It hasn't. And once again, we don't know that that's because he is taking a bullet for the team versus he just doesn't have the goods. He didn't have those conversations with Trump that would establish Trump's knowledge of these differing valuations being used in an inappropriate way. Josh, there is some indication that the judge in this case, at least, believes that Weisselberg is not hiding information because the judge 
took to uh, something that to federal prosecutors is a remarkable and unsettling role in the plea negotiations. Plea negotiations between federal and state cases are very different. Federal plea negotiations, the judges just do not get involved. They stay miles away from it. It's prohibited under federal law. State, it's very different. First of all, prosecutors have more of an ability to offer a deal that is a specific number. We're going to give you six months, and judges will tend to go along with that. There's also an ability to uh, seek what is sometimes called an indicated. Uh, It's basically where you go into the judge and said, hey, if I pled to these counts, what do you think you'd give me? And sort of get an indication of what the judge's thinking is. That seems to have been more or less what happened here, that both sides went in to talk to the judge about what an appropriate sentence would be if, hypothetically, Weisselberg pled to these 15 counts. And the judge indicated a willingness to give one of five months instead of the six the government was talking about. That's obviously not much of a difference. It's both a mechanism for the government to, in effect, allow a plea without saying that they're allowing the plea. In other words, have the fiction that they went in there and fought it, but the judge made the decision. And also for the defense to get some sort of level of certainty about what the outcome is going to be. So here, the judge did apparently make indications that uh, the relatively lenient sentence was contingent on Weisselberg cooperating against the Trump organization. And I think it's very unlikely uh, the judge would have had this role and approved something like that if the judge thought that he was holding out as to Trump himself. Is the system that you described there at the state level where the judge has more direct involvement, is that better or worse than the the hands-off federal approach? I mean, I assume that the federal system makes it harder to do the plea deal at all, right? Because each side has less certainty about exactly what the outcome is going to be. Do we want that kind of certainty? This, is the state system more clear and more efficient? Well, in theory, in the federal system, it it serves to prevent the federal judge from coercing a plea, from putting pressure on the defendant by saying, if you don't plead, I'm going to do this and this to you. That's what uh, the prosecutors do instead. So it's sort of anti-coercion, and that's consistent with the federal culture and understanding of the judge's role. But you're right that it it makes it more difficult to bargain for a particular result. It used to be uh, before the sentencing guidelines, which were in about 1984, uh, that you could do that in federal court. The government would bargain with you, you'd come up with a number, you'd take it to the judge. The judge didn't have to take it, but generally would. Now there's at least this veneer of the concept that there's a system that's supposed to guide the judge's discretion so you don't get you know, different people being treated in different ways for the same type of conduct. I personally, uh, there are upsides and downsides. Both types give the prosecution a lot of power. And sometimes the state system gives more. Sometimes the federal system gives more. Hey, everybody. This week's episode of Serious Trouble is free for all listeners. So if you're enjoying it, maybe share it with a friend or post it on social media. If you are a paying subscriber, thank you. It's your support that makes this whole operation possible. If you're not a paying subscriber and you'd like to become one, go to SeriousTrouble.show. You can sign up to get every full episode, over 40 episodes a year, and also to join our community and participate in thoughtful comment threads. We'd love to have you on board. Okay, now back to the show. 
the other big news this week has to do with the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. We've, we've seen the search warrant. We've seen the inventory describing in some level of detail the materials that were taken from Mar-a-Lago, information about the French president, et cetera, et cetera, certain things that had classified markings on them. But there's this question of the, the warrant application the, and the affidavit explaining what the reason was that they went to the judge saying, we believe that there is evidence of a crime here. Please give us the warrant that would tell us a lot more about what the nature of this investigation is. And so you've had Donald Trump making statements about how this should be public. He has not actually gone to court to seek it to be made public. Various media organizations have done that. And so the judge who signed off on the warrant uh, has now been there. There was a hearing and he, he issued an order basically saying that he may release some version of this affidavit but that it's going to need to be redacted if he's going to do it. And as as we were discussing before the show, there was the hearing where the judge spoke, and then there was this written order, and they sort of had different emphases, where if you, if you sort of listen to the judge, it really sounded like we were going to see some version of this warrant, that the, the government would send a list of, you know, what they think is really important to not release, and they'd redact it and he'd put it out. When you read the written order, it's much more sympathetic to the government's arguments about what shouldn't be released. And it sort of sounds like he's basically saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm refusing your proposal to just not to block the release altogether, but send me your list of redactions and then we'll figure out what we might be able to send out. And it leaves open the possibility that the redactions will be so extensive that the document it's, I mean, it's like, you know, you occasionally see these comical things where the government releases some document and it's just all black bars um, right. and you can't see anything that's in the document. And he even leaves open the option that basically if it's going to be so silly after the redactions that it contains no information, that there might not be a release after all. So we, we still don't know whether we're going to see some version of the warrant application or not. We don't. And I think this is a good example of how to understand what a judge is saying. Sometimes you have to be familiar with the proceedings and familiar even with the judge, because the words have somewhat different meaning when they're used to them than when you're not. So, you know, we, we uh, you and I, Josh, weren't in the room. We were relying on reporters who were in the room and their lawyers during that hearing. And I think the reporters, at least, took from it a, a different message than the judge was really conveying. The kind of reporting we got out of it was that the judge was skeptical of the government's uh, statements about secrecy and the need for secrecy and that, you know, he was going to maybe allow some redactions, but they were going to have to specify which ones. But I, I think the people in the room who kind of were familiar with that read it the right way, which was that the judge was basically hearing it out, making a good record and ultimately going to uphold most of the government's objections. When you read the order, it's clear that he thinks that the government has carried its burden of showing that it has a compelling interest in keeping some of this uh, secret and that it's it has a route that is narrowly tailored to doing that. Some of the interesting things is that in addition to the normal concept that a ongoing criminal investigation needs some secrecy uh, to maintain its integrity. Here, the judge was clearly responding to the things that are going on. The judge talked about the safety of witnesses, not just the unknown inside informants we suspect there are, but the FBI agent who filed the affidavit. The judge called out the fact that there was that you know, attack in Cincinnati on the FBI and threats against FBI agents. The judge also said that you know when you release information about the exact course of investigation. You're increasing the risk of obstruction of justice and subordination of perjury and pretty clearly made a 
reference to the fact, and I've already found probable cause that there has been obstruction of justice here. Mm -hmm. So this was a very different tone, I think, than Trump supporters were hoping for, given uh, the tone. And it, it reminds me a little bit about how hearings go sometimes. And you have to learn as a lawyer that if the judge starts out saying, oh, Mr. White, this was a wonderful motion. You did such a good job on it. I could tell all the effort you put in. I'm so glad to have practitioners of your quality. Sooner or later, after you practice for a few years, you hear that and you realize I'm about to get boned here. Um, so I, I think it was that type of situation where the judge is just sort of letting all the arguments come out. And now I suspect we're going to see very substantial redactions. But Josh, there's a lot in a warrant. These warrants, particularly this one, I, I would be shocked if it's less than 30 pages long. There is a lot of background and throat clearing and uh, sort of uh, generally known things in a warrant. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see things like, you know, the general background of the Trump presidency and the public statements he and his lawyers have made and uh, what is known about when he left office and, uh, you know, a discussion of the relevant law and uh, the stuff they'll redact will be the juicy bits about who told them what about when the documents were there and maybe the juicy bits about what statements the Trump team made that were to be impolite uh, lies. Mm. So basically, we we might see nothing. We might see something that is tantamount to nothing, or we might see something that like might be mildly interesting, but mostly it will be things we already know. And that's why it's not sensitive to release it, because it's already known by the public. Right. So you're going to get two pages of uh, FBI procedure and, you know, all my qualifications and training experience. You're going to get a few pages about the, the various federal laws in play. Uh, you're going to get some things about public statements Trump and his team have made. Beyond that, reading this order, I don't I think the judge is going to allow pretty broad redaction. I also thought it was interesting. And in, in addition to those, the, the usual concerns about if we disclose this, these facts about the investigation, it will compromise the investigation, it will make it easier for people to obstruct the investigation. And we haven't indicted anybody yet. Out of fairness to Donald Trump in general, you're not supposed to like release all of this pre-indictment information. But there's a, a specific thing here that's unusual to this case, where they also say that the affidavit discusses physical aspects of the premises of Mar-a-Lago, which is a location that's protected by the U.S. Secret Service. And so I guess one of the other concerns that the government has here is it could, it could undermine essentially Donald Trump's security to tell people a lot about the, the certain physical aspects of Mar-a-Lago that might not be publicly known. Yeah, you know, I think when you've got a past Bachelor contestant who's bragging on TV about how the, the Secret Service let him wander around Mar-a-Lago, I, I think that <laughs> that's probably not the strongest argument in the array of arguments there. Uh, and, and when you've got, you know, apparent Chinese spies or people who are delusionally believe they're Chinese spies wandering around the place. But yeah, I mean, I, I could see how that's an issue. One big factor here normally is the privacy interests of the targets of the investigation, the subjects of the investigation. And, and here's a thing where Trump and his team are clearly just posturing, okay? Because uh, he was saying they should unseal the, on Truth Social, uh, he was saying they should unseal the affidavit and his, his, you know, people in the media are saying, you know, this shouldn't be secret, it should be unsealed. But in the actual legal proceeding, he didn't say boo. 
you know, he could have filed something saying that we join the request for unsealing, could have at least put in a non-opposition. He could have had his lawyer appear at the hearing and make an appearance and say that instead of just being in the courtroom observing. And any of those things would have had an impact because one of the factors the judge considers are the privacy interests of the people involved. So, I mean, that would have had an impact on the judge's overall calculation. And he didn't do it, I think, because it, it's all posturing. It's not real. But I mean, he, he also could have intervened on the same side as the government. He could have said, I have privacy interests and I do not want this released. And there are reasons to think that, I mean, he could want this released because it would, in fact, interfere with the investigation and undermine the government's case. But there also is probably embarrassing information in here about Donald Trump, the disclosure of which is probably not great for him politically. And so if not for the PR interests, wouldn't you have expected him to say, I do not want the warrant application released because it contains derogatory information about me? It, you know, it contains things that are tantamount to accusations, even though I haven't been indicted. Like a normal defendant would want this not released, I would think. Not necessarily a normal defend. I mean, any question like that with Trump is sort of a angels dancing on the head of a pin type thing just because he's so abnormal and the situation is so abnormal. But normally, someone who is subject to a grand jury investigation might weigh their different interests and say, yeah, there's going to be some bad publicity, but it's worth it to know where they're going and what they have and what they're thinking. So that would be kind of the main event a lot of the time. And so... I don't know how it would come out, but I don't think politically or temperamentally he's able to come out and say, oh, this needs to be kept private and secret. And so in addition to this proceeding over the unsealing of the affidavit underlying the search warrant, President Trump on Monday, inconveniently after we originally taped this episode, we've come back to insert this conversation because we were overtaken by news. Donald Trump filed, this is a, a new lawsuit, I guess. It's not It's not a motion in an existing proceeding. He's suing, basically saying he wants a special master appointed here. He doesn't want them to look through his documents until they've appointed a special master. And he wants uh, he wants certain documents returned to him that he says were, uh, were taken illegally. Yeah, it's, it, it is filed as a separate action, which you could do, although you could also have filed it in the same proceeding where we already have the motions to unseal, which would have made sense because that's the magistrate who read the warrant. This is a term to motion for judicial oversight and additional relief. And it is uh, something. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've been doing this for a while and I have not seen a motion quite like this. I have seen ones somewhat like it, generally uh, coming in prison mail, stinking of cigarette smoke. But <laughs> this motion is a mess. It's all over the place in terms of what it asks for, the tone, the authority, just really everything. It's really weird the way some of this is written. And first of all, it's, it's a little ambiguous about what some of the relief is supposed to be, right? Like they, they say that they want the government to be ordered to produce a more detailed receipt, whatever that means. And they say this search raises a number of Fourth Amendment issues. And they say, well, anonymous sources and news articles raise questions about the, you know, the, the government's claims here and there and that sort of thing. It's almost written like a very long and poorly edited op-ed um, with a long list of complaints, including about how the courts have often been very unfair to Donald Trump, rather than seeming to basically lay out a legal case for why you're entitled to certain relief and the court should give it to you. I, I see it less as an op-ed and more of a YouTube comment. 
uh, really in, in tone and quality. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of griping about how unfair everyone is to Donald Trump, and that's fairly standard in any Donald Trump brief. Uh, but you're right, it does not clearly articulate exactly what remedy it wants. It does not clearly articulate in a coherent fashion, a consistent fashion, the basis for that. For instance, Federal Rule Criminal Procedure 41G is the rule under which you can move for return of illegally seized property, and it doesn't cite that or any of the case law surrounding that. It makes vague reference to the rule, but it doesn't go into that. It does a, a lot of interesting rhetorical things. So, for instance, one thing they complain about that's a lot of this is we think you must have concealed from the court how cooperative we were with the Justice Department because, you know, we invited them down, we accepted service a subpoena, we gave them documents. Um, so you must have hid that from the magistrate or the magistrate never would have approved a search warrant. But, you know, we know <laughs> from the search warrant return that they found documents marked secret and, and higher. And so this this motion is kind of in the position of saying that you had no reason to run a search warrant when we already turned over all the secret documents, notwithstanding that you found more when you ex executed the search warrant. <laughs> so it's very argumentative, but not in an effective way. Well, and also Trump and his team don't know what the government told the magistrate judge because the, the affidavit is sealed. Yeah. So, I mean, they could draw inferences. I mean, they don't draw very good inferences, as you note. Right. But also, I mean, that you're structurally at a disadvantage there if you're trying to argue that because the magistrate judge and the government know what the government told the magistrate judge and you don't. Absolutely. And I government commits misconduct all the time, but I very much doubt the type they commit here is lying or concealing to the magistrate judge about his cooperation. Because, in fact, that's probably part of the main event that from what we know is that he was protecting tending to cooperate while they were asking for things, and as it turns out, not really cooperating, and they wanted to go in because they thought there was still stuff there, and the uh, receipt suggests there wasn't stuff, in fact, stuff there. So I suspect everything he says that they concealed, they actually made very much uh, front and center in the search warrant affidavit. The other big thing they're complaining about is that there's a, you know, there ought to be a special master to review documents instead of the taint team. Donald Trump and his lawyers are anti-taint. They are against the taint team. Who could be anti-taint? Well, uh, you know, uh, it's out Everyone loves a taint team. Uh, well, I, I guess not everybody. They want a special master instead, which is what they used, you might remember, after Rudy Giuliani's office was searched. And so that's typically like a retired judge or something exactly. that they bring in to oversee the review of the documents for what's privileged. And by the way, in here, they when they're talking about privilege, they're not just talking about attorney-client privilege. He goes on about executive privilege in this filing, even though, as, as we've discussed, this is the executive seeking these documents. The documents are belong to the presidency. Donald Trump is not the president anymore. So to the extent that there was any relevant privilege here, then Biden and then would be able to waive that privilege. What they want the special master for in theory is not just for attorney-client privilege, but also for, for executive privilege. Yeah, but there's a few strange things about it. First of all, they waited two weeks. And mm -hmm. you just don't do that if you're worried about privileged materials being reviewed. I mean, we had a client once uh, searched and, uh, you know, a training client material seized, and we were in court that day. 
There, there is mm-hmm. no stretch on the imagination under which it's acceptable practice to wait two weeks. And in a case this important, it's almost certain that they've already reviewed all the relevant documents. The Tate team has already been through it. Yeah, very efficient Tate team. Yes. They're, they're all over it. Absolutely. Uh, so um, the other thing is, like you said, the, the main legal dilemma they face on executive privilege is that he almost certainly doesn't have it with respect to the executive. And and if he does, then Biden can waive it. The executive can waive it. And there's no discussion of that whole conundrum whatsoever. So it's the biggest <laughs> hole in their theory, and they don't address it. They don't also don't address what type of privileged materials they think might be in there. So if you were making a convincing case, you would say, I had a box of letters from my attorney and my responses, and it's gone now. I think they have it. That's why we need a special master. They don't do anything like that. It's sheer speculation. The whole tone and meandering nature of the thing really looks like the work of many uh, fist-fighting cooks in the kitchen, perhaps directed by the, the famously intrusive and opinionated Donald Trump. Well, and so let's talk about the attorneys on this, because there's three attorneys who signed this letter. One of them is Lindsay Halligan, uh, who is a uh, property and insurance attorney in Florida. Uh, Washington Post, when it wrote about Trump's scant legal team here, uh, looked into her and found that she had never filed anything in federal court before. So I guess this is this is a first for Lindsay Halligan. Congratulations. This is your first uh, federal court filing. Unlike Christina Bob, his other attorney, the one who was on site the day of the search at Mar-a-Lago, uh, Christina Bob is a former anchor on the right-wing One America News Network. Lindsay Halligan is not a former anchor on One America News, but she kind of looks like she could be. She's, you know, if you look at a picture of her, you see someone who would very much appear in the Trump legal orbit. But then there's two guys on here. There's James Trusty of IFRA Law in Washington, D.C., Jim Trusty. Uh, It's a great name for an attorney. Uh, And then the other is Evan Corcoran of a firm called Silverman, Thompson, Lutkin, and White. Uh, They are in Baltimore. We know Evan Corcoran was at a meeting uh, at Mar-a-Lago in June uh, with Christina Bob to discuss the return of various documents uh, with FBI agents. That was uh, another one of the the prior parts of the government's effort to uh, obtain the return of these documents before they uh, executed the search warrant. We also know Evan Corcoran and Jim Trusty. they advised federal prosecutors a couple of weeks ago uh, that Donald Trump would not oppose the unsealing of the warrant, uh, distinct from the warrant application. Um, what do we know about those guys? Well, they're both real attorneys. They, they both have experience within this realm. Uh, Jim Trusty has a substantial amount of experience uh, within this realm. And, and fair disclosure, I have done work before with his firm, although not on anything related to this. So uh, there are people who ought to know better on this thing, uh, is what (laughs) I'm saying. Two former assistant U.S. attorneys uh, who know you don't turn something looking like this into a court. So what's what's with this filing then? Why did they file it? Is this filed for PR purposes to make a public relations argument? Is this going to successfully delay any of these legal proceedings? Is there a plausible strategy behind why you, you know, write this thing in crayon and file it with the court? You know, I think the strategy is, uh, to repeat what we've been saying for four or five years, Josh, it's it's a PR strategy and not a coherent courtroom strategy. It's probably meant for public consumption, for Trump fan consumption, although to my taste, it's not even a top quality example of that. 
Uh, it's not really, I don't think, uh, intended to get much out of any court unless it's just, you know, headlines. It's entirely possible this will wind up back in front of the same magistrate judge anyway, uh, because magistrate judges often handle matters like this for district court judges, and it would make sense that the magistrate judge who knows all the facts would hear it. So I suspect it's all about that. It also just may be a matter of ego and client control. Trump may simply have demanded something. Sometimes clients just demand you do things. As long as they're not overtly illegal or literally suicidal, sometimes you cave in and do them. Well, because, I mean, this is interesting in the context of of the Washington Post article about the difficulty that uh, the former president was having trying to obtain good legal representation here. That, you know, the, the reason or one of the reasons that he was having an insurance attorney do this work for him was, as the, the Washington Post reported, there were a number of experienced, well-qualified criminal defense attorneys that uh, the former president was putting feelers out to trying to hire them, and that they kept saying no, one of them even talking to the paper about why he declined and saying that it was, you know, I'm, I'm busy, this isn't a DUI, that's going to be a lot of work. But uh, not only is this a, a complex case, it's one where, you know, the, the, the former president doesn't have a great reputation with all sorts of contractors that he might not pay for their services. Uh, and then also you you get put in a position of looking stupid having to file things like this. Yeah, you get you don't get paid. You get probably yelled at and belittled and demeaned. And you frequently get completely undercut uh, by your client doing things that reveals to the world you have no client control whatsoever, uh, which is embarrassing. You know, it's it, 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 <laughs> even with someone like Trump, where this is priced in, it's embarrassing when your client goes out and does something that completely contradicts your strategy and your stance. So it's a tough lift. Uh, but, you know, um, the two of these people are actually qualified with respect to federal criminal defense. I just noticed here, I'm looking again at the signature blocks on this filing. Jim Trusty and Evan Corcoran have the usual block. There's a phone number for their office and an email address at a web domain associated with their firm. Uh, Lindsay Halligan, no phone number, and it's a Gmail address uh, on the filing. Do you use your Gmail address on, on legal filings, Ken? You know, this is just a way, this is age discrimination, Josh. That's what this is. <laughs> you know, I have a, a good friend uh, who still has an AOL address that he uses for legal matters, I think is a point of <laughs> a point of pride and to, to basically tell kids to get off his lawn. Uh, some people have, you know, domains in the name of their firm and some people don't. Uh, it's more of a branding thing than a substantive thing. I see. Before we go, we have a, a couple of pieces of reader mail that I want to get to. Now, for, first of all, uh, this is a follow-up from a reader whose question we took uh, a few episodes ago. It was Tim who wrote in, and he noted in the question that he had served on approximately 15 jury trials. And you and I expressed some skepticism about that. That's a lot of, I mean, I have never been on a, on a jury. I've only gone to jury duty once in 2013, and I've not been summoned since. I have not, you know, had to come up with ways to avoid jury duty. I just haven't been called. Um, and so the idea of, of ending up on 15 trials in a lifetime sounded very high to me. But I, I want to apologize to Tim uh, because uh, we both basically accused him of lying about this. Tim, we're sorry. You're not a liar. You're just crazy. <laughs> 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 um, 
So uh, he says, uh, thank you for discussing my question on your show, but he's writing back. He says the reason he's actually sending this email is the two of us were apparently skeptical of his claim to have served on 15 juries. Well, in the immortal words of Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, allow me to retort. He says (laughs) he has indeed served on roughly that many juries. It might be 16. It might be 14. He thinks it's really 15. He was at 12, and then he served on three more juries before finally moving out of California three years ago. And he's moved to Iowa, and he's already been called for jury duty after being there only for two years. He said, when he lived in California, he got called for jury duty at least once a year for 33 consecutive years. And in some years, he got called more than once. In New York, they're not allowed to call you that often. Oh, they, they do here. You can only be called every five years in New York. No such luck here, Josh, in California. You, can, you get called all the time. In fact, actually, sorry, I, I, I'm mistaken. I, I, I misremembered my own jury service. I did get summoned in Manhattan four years and nine months after my one day in the jury pool in Queens not getting put on the jury. And no one at the court would answer my phone call. I kept calling and basically saying, you know, you can't summon me. I'm not eligible. And so I had to go there in person. And then the person looks at my summons and my certificate of service from five years earlier. And she goes, this says 2013. That's five years ago. And I'm like, it was four years and nine months. And then she sort of sighs and then basically hands me some form. (laughs) And I assumed that they were going to call me three months later, but they didn't. It's been four years and I have not been called for a jury. I mean, obviously, COVID interfered with much of the operation of the courts. But at least uh, maybe this is a reason not to live in California. He, the, our, Tim also writes in, in his note that at one point in the 2000-2001 timeframe, he served on six juries in 18 months, two each for county, state, and federal. He once served on two juries in four weeks. He's a professional. This is bizarre. It is. I, I have to say the last time I got called for jury duty, uh, I did get put in the box and questioned as a prospective juror. The criminal defense attorney and the prosecutor both asked me questions. And at the end of uh, talking to me, they approached the bench and apparently stipulated to have the judge ask me to leave. So, <laughs> uh, you know, if you ever want any tips on how to get out of jury duty, I guess I'm, the, I'm your guy. It's to become a, a criminal defense lawyer. Apparently. Okay. So anyway, uh, we want to apologize to Tim. Thank you for your service and service and service and service and service. You, you make our <laughs> criminal justice system possible. Then we have another uh, question uh, from a reader. Uh, who It's about Rico, Ken. So he sent it into What's our email address? It's ricohotline at serioustrouble.show, Josh. Yes, that's the email address. And so, of course, it's you know the perfect place to send questions about Rico. And so uh, our listener, Mike, says, I think it's safe to say without spoiling the episode of the show that at one point during the Better Call Saul finale that aired this month, uh, there's a recitation of the charges that Saul Goodman faces after facilitating the rise of Walter White's meth empire. Um, Of course, RICO violations are among them. He says he knows from listening to this show and to all the president's lawyers before it that it's basically never RICO. But could all the money laundering and et cetera for Albuquerque's most notorious drug kingpin be one of the rare exceptions where it is RICO? Absolutely. I mean, that's the type of thing that is RICO. RICO is made for a criminal organization, an organization that is devoted to doing specifically criminal things. It's not designed for a allegedly legit organization that also does crooked things. So which is how it's usually used. How it's usually used rhetorically. Exactly. I think that's enough serious trouble for this week. Uh, listeners, tell us what you think of this episode. Send us any questions. You can send them to the Rico Hotline. That's Rico Hotline at serioustrouble.show. 
Or you can, of course, join the comments uh, on the page at SeriousTrouble.show for this episode. We have a lively comment section. I encourage you to participate. And uh, of course, you know, go there, sign up. That's also where you can become a premium subscriber and get every episode of this show, the full length each week, approximately 40 times a year. Uh, and uh, the, uh, we think it's a great little community. Uh, so uh, join us there. And Josh, you know, uh, I still run into people, even at this point, who uh, listened to all the president's lawyers and who still don't know that we have a new show. So to our listeners, if you can keep occasionally uh, mentioning us on social media, uh, maybe linking to one of the shows, uh, that's much appreciated. Yes, that would be great. Please tweet about us and, t- and tweet the link to the show if you enjoyed it at uh, SeriousTrouble.show. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon.